0: Hey there, everyone. Welcome to LSAT Demon Daily. I'm Ala, and I'm joined by the wonderful Chris. We are both teachers at LSAT Demon, which you can find at lsatdemon.com. This is the fourth episode in our RC series. I'm really excited. Um, We both love RC. We want to teach you how to fall in love with it. Um, Today's episode is about staying in the proverbial saddle as you work through RC. So let's start with what What the hell does that mean, Chris? Why are we talking about
1: this? (laughs) Yeah. So RC passages, uh, they'll employ a lot of tricks to try to buck you off your game. They'll try to get you to quit, to move on, to forget your job, remembering that our job is to understand. And so that means a lot of times we have to apply a little bit of hard work, some more time, some energy to staying with the passage as it bucks around, it moves, it tries to trick us. And at the end, when we've accomplished that high level of understanding that we need by not paying attention to it, trying to throw us off, we're going to be able to answer questions with really, really high accuracy.
0: Yeah, exactly. What we're talking about is an approach to RC that focuses on the destination, on the goals of the author, that so that you don't get distracted by other details, some of which are important, but some of which don't always um isn't always something that you have to keep in mind in order to do well in the questions
1: we're also going to talk about a lot of things that have come up in our classes or working with tutoring students common places where students kind of fall out of the saddle a bit or lose sight of what's really important in a passage and to be perfectly honest between Allah and I there are times when we still have to slow down maintain our focus in different ways and passages. So we are actually accomplishing what we need to. And by slowing down, Allah, talk to us what that means.
0: Yeah. So what do you say slow down? And this is something that you definitely will have heard if we, if you've heard our other um, RC episodes in this series. Um, we say slow down a lot at the demon because we do know that the work is in the passage before you get to the questions. But we know that just saying slow down is by itself so we want to provide nuance in that and we'll mention it in multiple places in this episode so what we mean by that is slowing down with a purpose slowing down because you want to understand not just slowing down for the sake of slowing down for instance if somebody's telling me something complicated i'm going to be like stop i don't understand what you're saying and then I take it piece by piece because I want to understand what they're saying, right? It's like, I pause a lot when I watch like certain movies and certain TV shows, because I don't know what the hell is going on. And I pause because I'm like, oh, that's what they mean. Um, and that's my desire to understand what's happening in front of me. Um, and it's about the slowing down that comes from a desire to understand rather than just let me understand everything that's in front of me at like a, you know, granular detail. What do you think, Chris?
1: Precisely, and I love that you used purpose because we have a job and that job is understanding why the hell the author wrote this piece and what they want us to do with it. Which means there are times in a passage that we can actually read sentences pretty quickly sometimes. We understand the purpose, we know the role it's playing in the passage, and so we don't have to slow down as much. There are other times when that passage isn't as clear that we do have to make sure we're going slow. And so keeping that purpose in mind, knowing our job, knowing what we have to do uh, can really help us set our pace through these passages.
0: Yeah, I like that. I mean, I was terrible with like our passages. I used to be really slow on them, but that's just because those took me longer to understand and that's going to change from person to, to person, Um Another thing that we wanted to mention when we say stay in, the, stay in the saddle is to not overcomplicate it for yourself. We have a couple of different train analogies to make, to make the points that we're making right now. Um, one that I want to make is that you have to remember that you are trying to do the work of understanding the passage. The passage is your client, you're the lawyer for the passage. Your job is to take that information in, understand it, be on the side of the passage until you're told otherwise, right? And what that means is you're going to notice other things that are happening as the train is moving forward, right? There might be things in the scenery, there might be a little train heist that happened and you have to like stay on track or something like that. But you're pulling that train on those tracks and it's gonna go where it was meant to go all along. And your job is to keep track of the twists and the turns and go to the destination that the author cares about. It doesn't, all the details don't matter as much. And a lot of students tend to complicate things by making themselves think that they have to understand the train's journey from like every single perspective. Nope, they just have to stay on the tracks and stay focused.
1: This becomes really important for us to recognize that all of these passages provide a frame for us. There's a little box, a shape that these passages live in. We're living in that, too. And so that means that sometimes outside knowledge that we have about this topic or feelings that we have about this topic or things we've read or potential applications of this topic in another world a million miles away, they aren't helping us understand the destination of that train or the route that the author took us to get to that destination. Both of those things are relevant. Both of those things are going to be what the questions ask about. And so that's what we want you to focus on in the passage. So if you find yourself reading through a passage and kind of going on mental tangents or bringing in outside information and wondering how it weighs, those behaviors aren't useful unless they're helping you engage and understand what the passage is actually saying to a higher degree.
0: Yeah, I love that. we also wanted to take a moment to pause, now that we've introduced what the po- what the point of this episode is, to answer a couple of questions that we got. One is from the ask button that we thought that would be relevant and interesting for you guys to hear our response. Um, another is actually from a student. We got our first question from a student um, who actually listened to our podcast episodes, and we love these questions, so send us more um, if you... Um, if you want us to feature you on the podcast. Um, but do you want to start with the ask button question, Chris?
1: I would. question says, Hello, do you have any tips for how to get better at keeping track of the two opposing sides of a debate, or two contrasting ideas when the passage throws at us a whole bunch of similarities or differences between the groups? I struggle when there are so many details about the differences between the two groups. Is the best thing to recap all those details briefly in my head at the end of each paragraph?
0: Interesting. So maybe I'll, I'll, th- I'll kick things off and then you, um, you tell me what I'm missing, Chris. So I think that students tend to put the LSAT on a pedestal just a little bit, sometimes a lot, right? You are constantly holding two, three, six, seven different ideas and sides of a debate in your head all the time, every day. Just think about like even in your own family, the number of like disagreements that you have, like on individual, like political topics, for instance, right? Like Thanksgiving is a place where like I feel like politics gets gets really interesting and you're holding so many different nuances. What I'm trying to say it's to the to, to the person that asked the question is that you already know how to do this, right? And the reason you know how to do this is because you're not just seeing it as a laundry list of, this is what this side thinks. And this is what that side thinks. You're thinking, okay, in general, this view is trying to change something about the status quo. And under that, you've got some ideas of things that might change the status quo. And on the other side, you've got some people that are kind of traditional. They're like, I don't want to change anything. I want to stick with the status quo. And they've got their own reasons for that. Right? Notice what I'm doing. I'm giving each side that you're looking at a story and I'm incorporating those details as reasons to Reasons why you would pick one side over the other.
1: Yeah, and I don't want this student to lose sight of the forest for the trees here. When I go through comparative passages, or oftentimes even within a single passage, we get different arguments uh, in this on an issue. I create kind of a mental Venn diagram, and I keep the terms broad. So this side, author agrees with tax reform. Author, this side hates tax reform perfect. I don't have to memorize every single premise and try to hold that in my head the entire time I'm working through the passage. I've got the broad strokes. I can recall those things. I saw how they supported the argument. I'm there. I also pay particular attention to that middle part of the Venn diagram. So Tax reform is okay sometimes under these conditions. Both would agree to that. Or what are the parts that they definitely never, ever agree on that we see? Those are the things that become really, really relevant. But I think if we get too lost in the weeds of all the specific facts or premises that an argument is making, sometimes students lose sight of the overall argument. And that's a difficult thing to answer questions when we lose sight of the passages, argument, and purpose. Yep.
0: You can personify the opposing sides, right? You can put a Put a face to aside, that might help too, but um, definitely what Chris is saying about the Venn diagram, I like that a lot. I'm going to read the question. from- Yeah, from Question uh, from Lucy. From Lucy
1: if you want to read it's that always one,
0: humbling to get a main point question incorrect in RC. I'm an avid reader and always thought I could summarize the passage pretty easily, but the LSAT is proving me wrong as I tend to miss these these the most for some reason. What is your thought process? when approaching that first main point question. For example, are you focusing on the author's POV? Is there some kind of strategy you employ? Thank you, Lucy, for being our first question.
1: Yeah, and what a great one. This is one students ask in chat a lot. And one thing that I think I picked up from Ben, uh, co-founder of LSATdemon.com, in his classes, was that main point questions are usually wrong for only one of two reasons. They are inaccurate. So they say something from the passage incorrectly, or they just say something the passage didn't, they're just incorrect, or they're incomplete. They don't quite capture everything that the passage said. But one small shift I think we could make, Lucy, is a lot of students get into trouble when they think main points are summaries. Sometimes they are, but really main points are more reflective of purpose than they are summaries of the entire passage. When you look at this and you're trying to find a summary, sometimes students will pass on answers that they think are too broad. They're too umbrella. They don't include every little micro thing that the passage talked about. But that was still the main point why the author sat down to write it.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. The only other thing that I would add is that if you are someone that's struggling with main point qu- questions the most one thing you might be um, might be might benefit from is adding depth to the passage it could be that the reason that you are struggling on these questions is because you might be seeing main point questions as the summary that chris is talking about right you're like oh look at all of these details they all matter and they probably do matter but do they all matter to the same extent and the answer is no, right? Some of the stuff that they're telling you, some of the goals that the author has are far more important than the details and the little side notes that the author is making. So add depth to the passage. You were going to hit on this point with a little bit more detail um, down the line as well, but add depth to the passage, figure out what the author really cares about. And then notice that some of those examples and details might not matter as much.
1: Yeah, So we want to thank you all for your listener questions. Please, please send us more. I'd love a whole episode of listener questions. You can send that to us at our emails or the Demon Daily email. But we want to get back to this topic of how to stay in the saddle and RC passages, even when the LSAT is pulling a couple tricks out of its sleeve to buck us off. And so some of these tricks involve. Um, not understanding difficult words that we see, language tricks uh, that the LSAT does, and generally the sentences that put us in unfamiliar territory. What would you say about those, Ella?
0: Yeah, so this falls under this sort of ma- micro uh, version of staying in the saddle, right? Those detail-oriented issues that you might run into later. We're also going to cover macro issues with staying in the saddle. So under this like micro uh, list, we've got. Like words. And I think vocabulary um, is one of those big umbrellas. And we also want you to know that everything we're talking about this in this episode, it just it doesn't just apply to the passage, it applies to the questions and the answer choices, right? It's about how you take in information. So let's start with vocabulary. And I think this is an interesting one to talk about. And this is something that um, you might hear in another podcast that um, Francesca and I did. Um we're not sure when it's gonna come out, but that's about um, you know, the difficulties that Um, ESL students have to face, and I give about two or three different um, kinds of checks that you can do if you run into a word that you don't understand. So the first one is the something test, where you just put in thing or something into the sentence to replace the word that you're struggling with. One of the biggest things that can help you when you're struggling with a word is context. However, Context is hard to discern when you're staring at this word that you don't know and you feel like the section is crumbling around you, right? Something test helps you with that because if you read the sentence with just the word something or thing as a placeholder, then you start seeing the context and you start seeing that like, oh, there's some details in here that might help me figure out what this means. Another test, and you can use multiple of these tests with with um, with a particular sentence anytime you want to, Another one is the positive, negative, neutral test where you don't know what a word means. That's okay, But from the context, can you just get started? Can you just say, is it neutral? Is it positive? Is it negative? Another way to say that is, is it going against the author's opinion or is it going for the author's opinion? Right. And all of these sort of strategies can help you work through a sentence um, to be able to understand what that word means, even if you don't know the dictionary definition. And I argue that the context is more important than a dictionary definition.
1: One of my favorite uh, co-workers that we have is Delia, who always says the LSAT tells you everything you need. Uh, and yeah. this is a good example of that. In RC, these sentences and these paragraphs are giving us everything we need to figure out what these words are. And like Alice said, more important than what Merriam-Webster would say is how the author used it. And sometimes we can find help in directional words, words that orient us to where the author is moving. And some of those words are so strong. So if we have words like however, or although, those tell us, okay, this is oriented in a specific way relative to the main point. These are things that help us give direction. So any word that comes after that we know the flavor to all is positive, neutral, or negative tests. We can see that with a word like that. And if we see things like thus or in conclusion, yeah. those are super strong. They're conclusory statements, right? And so conclusory statements right. are going to be in line with whatever argument they're representing. They fit in with that.
0: Right, exactly. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, the the set is legally defensible. Y'all would sue them, if they didn't give you enough information to answer questions. And in doing that, I think RC is a section where they give you the most information. They actually give you a lot more than you need to know sometimes. And that's where your sort of saving grace comes in for not knowing individual words or not being able to understand a certain concept. Um, I wanna give an example for what this might be. And I'm gonna challenge Chris here. I'm gonna read the sentence to you. And there's a word in here that you probably don't know, Chris. And I want you to tell me if there's pieces of this that are helping you understand what that word means. So this is from uh, Prep Test 73, passage three, and it says some critics of advertising have assumed that the creation of false needs in consumers is the principal mechanism underlying what these critics regard as its manipulative and hegemonic power.
1: And which word do you want me to define in this I'm one?
0: I'm thinking it's hegemonic because I don't know what that <laughs> means.
1: Yeah, it's never stum or advertising. Those I would have been really <laughs> able to just hop in. Um, yeah, so this sentence is a good example of one that gives us a lot of clues and a lot of direction here. And the first thing that my mind jumps to is right at the end around hegemonic when it's likened to something that I actually do know what the hell it means, and that's manipulative. And hegemonic is situated right next to the word power. So hegemonic Mm -hmm. is related to power and it's likened to being manipulative. So that gives me enough flavor that I can tell, all right, someone with hegemonic power is probably manipulating something. And then the front half of the sentence comes in, we're creating false needs in consumers. So there's some deception, some trickery, uh, some desire there to deceive. And that uh, is something that people critique. There are critics of this in advertising, which again tells me probably a bad thing to those people. With that, I couldn't tell you a dictionary definition of hegemonics still, but I can tell you exactly how it was used and why it's there. It's an example of some manipulative power structure that creates these false needs uh, through advertising.
0: 10 out of 10, Chris, you get brownie points too, well done. Notice how strange that sentence would be if it ended with what these critics regard as its manipulative and wonderful power, right? It would never make any sense. It's gotta go with everything else that's happening around it and that's the point that we're trying to make. The other thing to be
1: confident of is Allah made this test kind of hard. It was just one sentence, but you're going to have a whole passage and the flavor of the entire argument and the author's purpose to help you. So even if this sentence was difficult for you to pick apart, this sentence is going to be part of an entire passage that has a distinct voice and a distinct purpose. And this is likely going to be related to that in some specific direction.
0: Exactly. Um, And they love to do this stuff, right? They love to give you words that you don't know, and they love to do what we are calling obfuscation right where where essentially you are being placed on the back foot when it comes to words that they use the order in which they give them to you the i love my students always call them run on sentences but they're not i don't think grammatically run on sentences they're just sentences that are incredibly like complicated and twisted and knotted sometimes and it's your job to stay in the saddle and work through the twists that they're making
1: and I can tell what does you, obfuscation
0: looks like? look like, Chris?
1: Yeah, it honestly looks like really horrible writing, the writing that you could never get by with on a high school paper, but somehow is okay on the LSAT. And through this horrible obfuscated writing, the LSAT is hoping that you'll kind of check out, that you will give up, uh, that you won't try to tie that sentence to the purpose of the passage. And so what they're trying to hide from you in this obfuscation, are very simple ideas. They are really elementary concepts most times that they dress up in really complicated clothes. And what helps us navigate that and work through that process is again, understanding the author's purpose. Where does the author require that this passage go? What is their job? And as soon as we can unlock that in the passage, we can cut through a lot of this chaff and realize like, oh. Okay, uh, this is what the sentence is doing, even though it's doing it in the worst, least efficient way possible. And one of the ways that you see this is just in passive voice and crazy use of prepositions. So, on, by, of, before, they'll stretch out phrases that could be one word into seven or eight. Um, and they're hoping that somewhere in those seven or eight words, you'll kind of check out. So, you don't realize this is the concept you've been reading about for six or seven lines before. They'll hope to pull a little bait and switch on you.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, they love to give you the information, like they they could give you the information in the right order. They don't do they don't do that. That's that's one thing. The other thing is they'll often give you a full length setup, and then they'll change it at the last minute, right? And they do that is be in, exactly for the reason that Chris is saying. Right? They're checking to see if you're gonna keep paying attention or are you just gonna dip out and be like, yeah, it's too complicated. They're saying something here, but I don't need to understand it.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that this often tricks uh, students to do is they're like, wow, that sentence was a doozy.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm gonna peek at
1: the next sentence and see if that one helps me out. And sometimes it might, you might get a little help. Sometimes it won't. And students just kind of keep going forward, hoping the next sentence is a lifeline for them. And they might've missed one of those easy concepts in a prior sentence that was obfuscated. They tried to dress it up in fancy clothes. And so you couldn't see it. And there are ways that students can get in trouble by allowing this uh, complicated, horrible writing to dictate what they understand.
0: Right, because what they're doing is essentially they're putting the passage in power. They're not the ones in power. They're not the ones that are like watching over what's happening. Um, Another way that this looks and I affectionately will probably call this like my friend that like name drops but also is an amnesiac um, and I know Chris is like familiar with this on passages I've seen it lots and lots of times it's when they say it this right they'll change the word in some way or the phrase in some way to to talk about what they're talking about but then if you're not following along then you're not understanding right Chris.
1: Absolutely, and this will happen sometimes with uh, big concepts that the entire passage is about. And even if they don't change it to just a neutral pronoun like that, sometimes they'll just use completely different words to describe it, but it's talking about the same thing. So if it's talking about bias, It will say it in five or six different ways throughout the passage. But we, if we're recognizing like, oh, this thing is that thing, which was that thing, which is this thing and seeing they're all the same, we might be confused when we encounter that same concept dressed in new clothes. And the LSAT is banking on the fact that we're not going to slow down and do the work to actually pick apart what that means and see, oh, yeah, that was that simple idea I read like a paragraph ago.
0: Right. And if you don't understand that simple idea can have other sort of uh, labels on it, then you won't notice when the label changes or you won't notice what it is referring to. And that's what we mean when we talk about slowing down with a purpose, right? You slow down to the point where you get it and then you come on. Uh, another point I wanted to make was about how this sort of what do you call it? Like being aware and very cautious and careful as you read through the passage. I have tons of students, wonderful students who are starting to now adapt and put, the, put these changes into place for how they address passages. But um, they think that the passage is sort of like where that battle ends of comprehension. And when they move into the answer choices, they take their, um, their foot off the gas.
1: Yeah, and (laughs) this makes me laugh because I feel so sad when this happens in class. We do a great story time read through. We'll create meaning together as a class. Like our main point at the end will be killer. We'll know this thing top to bottom. And I think students go into the answer choices like so confident. They're like, yes, we did it. I've got this. And then they just kind of accept really bad answers that aren't doing what they need to because they're not reading with that same critical frame that we had working through the entire passage. This is like the equivalent of uh, running in an event, a track event, and then you're on like the last leg and like you kind of look behind you to like see where everybody else is at. And then your speed drops (laughs) in half and everybody (laughs) passes you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, If I had to extend an analogy from another episode, so like I've always talked about the passage sort of like being an armory where you put on all these like shields and swords um, before you go into battle and you'd be, you know, you would be making a huge mistake if you didn't take that help before you went out. And if I were to extend that analogy here, it would essentially be like you trained with armor, like you've been practicing for like, you know, a long time, you've gotten good at it, you understand everything that's going on. But then you're like, uh, yeah, no, my training's enough. I don't need any of the armor at all. I don't need to remember anything that I actually learned. I'll just go figure it out, right? That's I, I, I like the confidence going into the questions. I'm not going to lie. I like it when students are like, I did the work. I am the expert on the passage. I got this. But that's got to be backed up with you defending the passage with ev- at every answer choice, right? The answer choices are your enemy in the sense that they are go- four out of 5 of them are going to go against the passage and you can't pick those.
1: And I think this just speaks to the need to really apply that understanding you made in the passage to the questions and we have yes. to be really certain that that purpose we identified, that argument that we followed and supported is what these questions are going to be asking about. These questions aren't going to be asking us to restate facts from the passage. They're going to be asking us to apply that argument and that purpose to different scenarios. What would they support? What wouldn't they support? If we can keep that in mind, that understanding, we should be able to predict, to answer these questions without looking at all of the answer choices, and oftentimes without a need to really return to the passage at all but the game doesn't stop when we finish the passage, the game starts (laughs) when we go into the questions. That's what we have to win. That is our purpose in this section.
0: Exactly, exactly. Your job is to protect the passage. You're the lawyer for the passage. And if your client is losing their shit in the answer choices, you can't do that, right? You have to stay true to what what the story actually is. I think that was a good sort of list of the stuff at the micro level. Of, like, what staying in the saddle looks like. Do you want to shift into the macro level, Chris? Of, like, what does this look like on a broader understanding of the passage or understanding of the author's main point?
1: Totally. And what Alan and I just talked about was kind of in the middle of that sentence with that individual word. What can you expect? What can you experience? We're going to look now at kind of passages as a large piece. What should our frameworks be? How should we approach that so we can make sure that we stay engaged? And the first point we have to make sure we can hit accurately with high understanding will be no surprise to anybody that's heard Alla and I talk about. It's that main point. If we get to the end of the passage and we can't understand that main point, that's a problem. But more than just checking in at the end to seeing if you've got it, this is something that has to frame our entire read through the passage from the first word. We have mm-hmm. to be thinking, why is this author sitting down at their typewriter, late night, no friends, coffee and torn up paper everywhere, room is a mess to type this thing feverishly. That's the purpose. Okay, that's what we have to be hunting for. So any words that give us a hint, an indication, a whiff of that main point, we are like bloodhounds following that scent. And we want to do that from the very beginning. If you read through a passage and you haven't like asked yourself, why am I here until the end, when you're trying to create that main point, then we're likely in a little bit of trouble.
0: Exactly. And I really appreciate that point, Chris, because what that is, is you doing the work to hang on to the stuff that the author wants you to walk away with, right? Sometimes the author is going to have like a, Hey, I want, this is the proposal that I I want you to um, buy into. Other times it's just a set of facts that lead to something a little bit general. It could be reporter style, right? In that case, the author isn't exactly trying to convince you of something. They're trying to make you remember something and walk away with this like idea of, wow, this is how that like one civilization collapsed. Right? that's you being discerning to the point where you're like, oh, the, uh, there isn't an author's opinion here. There's an author who's, who cares about something. There's the voice of the author.
1: Totally. And the real uh, game here is that there are parts of passages that matter more than others when it comes to creating this understanding and main point of the author's argument, if there is one. There are sections that we can't really evaluate we can't spend a lot of time thinking about holding or measuring because we don't know how they relate to the author's purpose. So we want to be familiar with facts. We want to understand those. But facts become high value when we see what the hell they're doing to support or attack an argument.
0: Yeah, I like that, Chris. I essentially call that adding depth. Um, I had a student actually like Lucy's questions question towards the top of the episode about adding, about missing main point questions. Somebody asked me like, hey, I'm missing them. And I was like, hey, you're probably missing them because you're not adding depth to the passage. So to continue the traveling analogy, right? Staying in the saddle or trains, we've got a lot of travel analogies today. Um, What I would call that is you've got a map in front of you and you need a topographical map, not just a map that tells you where things are, but tells you, okay, this is where things are, but this is the thing that's sticking out at you, the thing that you've got to remember.
1: Absolutely. And what are the sort and, of
0: things that like help in that, I think would be the next question.
1: Yeah, it's remembering this macro game. Remembering what our job is here. It's not to memorize facts. It's not to be able to regurgitate facts from the passage and what it said. It's to understand how those relate to purpose. And so sometimes it's an exercise in knowing where do I dig in? Where do I spend a lot of time thinking? Where do I really sit with this concept or sentence? And which ones uh, do I just kind of want to store? Do I want to file away until they become relevant? And so when we look at areas that we don't necessarily need to spend a ton of time, that's in facts that the passage gives us, premises of their argument. If we're in a scientific passage, that's going to be really scientific facts laws of physics, stuff like that. I don't need to sit and think about every single application of that fact or play with the numbers in that data set or evaluate the temperature it gives me in a different context. Those things don't become high value until I see what the author is using them for in an argument. Once I encounter argument, then maybe I play with those facts a little bit.
0: Right. And what Chris is talking about is like, not only do we talk, not only do we think about facts as like whether they're relevant or not and how they're relevant, but what role are they playing in the author making their case? Right. And this is something I think that students might struggle with because, um, the LSAT, I think, uh, in different sections, you've got different mindsets, right? When you're in a game section, you're all about building worlds. You're all about solving the game before you go into the questions. In LR, it's all about the attack. How aggressive are you? How how well can you take down the passage in front of you so you can find the problem with it? And then the question will almost, in most cases, will ask you about that problem that you just found. In RC, however, the passage is mostly premises, right? The passage is just a list of, a lot of it is just a list of facts, but the facts are there for a reason. And that's exactly what Chris is getting at, right? Students always, I think, a lot of times think that the facts and the point are equally as valuable but nope the facts are only there to make the point
1: absolutely and for any lr fans out there if you're a student that does really well at lr and are still training in our rc dojo by hyper consuming our podcasts and coming to our classes <laughs> we love you but i want you to think about how it feels doing a passage driven LR question, so that can be a flaw question, it can be a reasoning question, anything where we are just looking at the facts in the argument or the stimulus that there's no argument and seeing how they apply to an answer choice. That's how we should read RC. We're looking to understand structure, what they're doing, make small inferences and how these sentences and concepts play together. But we don't have to come out swinging at every single sentence. We really just wanna understand the purpose of why we're here.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, And it's like, you know, they're all must be trues on RC. Um, They're all all top-down passage-driven questions in that you would not be able to answer them if you did not understand or if you didn't read the passage, right? Um, You can't reverse engineer them. You've just got to go from the passage to the question. Um, And you don't have to worry too much about the arguments themselves. You don't need to attack them. You don't need to be adversarial um, because the passage is your friend. Um, and And it's not like an LR passage where you have to be on the attack and on the guard because they're like, oh, they have no business making this case to me.
1: Absolutely. And when we look you know, at those places when you can dig in and see what would an attack look like, what would uh, a strengthened premise for this argument look like, still do those. Do those as predictions in the passage to predict what does this author have to do to move this forward? What do they have to be worried about in another POV if this passion starts sharing about that? Because those skills of predicting that are still tools and our macro understanding of the passage to fully understand that main point and argument of the author, it's okay to spin it around and look at it from different angles. That doesn't mean with every fact we get in the passage, we really have to try to turn it upside down and tear it apart from inside out. And with this macro understanding, looking at our large scale job, which is understand purpose, The LSAT is hoping that they can distract you with facts and complicated words and getting you really, really in the weeds so they can skip that purpose right by you. They're hoping that you'll give up. And it's really a game of like a staring contest and seeing with you eyeing this passage, which one of you is going to blink first. And what we want is to give you the confidence that you're not going to be the one blinking in these because they're achievable. You can really, really tackle these by remembering what our job is.
0: Yeah, um, this is actually reminding me of how um, I often like watch uh, movies with my dad, and sometimes we pick up like you know movies that aren't the best; they're not winners, um, and we'll watch them. And he he's always in awe because I'll like tell him exactly what the next pl- plot point's going to be, and I've never seen the movie, and he's like, "How do you know that?" And it's because once you've seen enough like storytelling, and I, and I love storytelling, I, I try to write in my free time, and I adore stories in general. Um, you've, if you've seen enough, you start knowing like where they're gonna go next. And that's where the power of prediction is. It's because it's a, it's a participation in the story act, in the story being told at all. Like if you're thinking about like old times, like around a, um, a pit fire in the caveman days of listening to stories, people listen because they wanna know what happens next and their brain, the neurons are firing in all directions trying to figure out what's gonna come next. And that's where your power of prediction comes in, because it really is an active participation of exactly what Chris is talking about. It's about that tuning in. And when you predict, you're like invested in what's going to happen next. And that is such a that's that's a power that keeps you interested. And it's a power that keeps you focused on all the right things.
1: And in this macro sense, it's helpful to remember when we're keeping our job in mind that the facts in the passage don't matter as much as how the author uses them. That's what we need to understand. And even applying that to the micro sense, a specific word in a sentence doesn't matter as much as how the author uses it, because that relates to purpose and context. All of these require us to really be familiar with the author's purpose and understanding. So know the facts, but know them to the degree that you can tell where they're going, what they're supporting and what the author wants from them.
0: Yeah, and that sort of bucking of the horse, right, where you're trying to be thrown off, it can look both micro and macro, right? It can look something like they give you a bunch of details and those details don't fit in together. They don't fit in together yet. They don't make sense all at once. And one t- some, some of the time your job is to just hold on to the things that don't make sense, keep moving along. And we're not saying move on before you understand. In order to understand, you have to be able to see, okay, these are the four facts they gave me. These two make sense with what they've been telling me. These two, I did the work to understand them and they still don't get it. That means you got to hold on to these two as you're going along to figure out the right places to slot them in to the mind map story that you're building.
1: Yeah. And as we close this out, know that your saddle is your own. Staying in the saddle is a relative term to you. If Allah and I were reading the same passage and we both recorded it and published the recording of that, we would slow down in different places. We would have different sentences that through our interest. We might dig in in different places on this passage because our job is to read as slowly as we need to, to understand. And there might be things that would buck me out of the saddle that Allah's like, nope, I've got that. That's in my wheelhouse. And then the opposite might be true in other sentences as well.
0: Yeah. And that's because we approach the LSAT into a theme and generally for any section of the LSAT, we want you to be able to do it as a second nature, as a facet of your personality almost. And that's why Chris and I are going to be different when we read, but we'll end up in the same place of, oh, this is what the author cares about. And it doesn't matter what the journey looks like, as long as we prioritize these different elements and try to focus on, okay, they're giving me information together. It means something. What is that?
1: Absolutely. And so I think that puts a nice bow on this episode of staying in the saddle want to give an extra thanks to the students who submitted questions to us. It was wonderful to hear from you. I hope we hear more of that. And if you'd like to be included on our next episode with a question or a suggestion of a future topic, just email daily at lsatdemon.com to ask us those questions or even just talk about uh, what you've liked about these episodes or how they've helped you. Thank you all for listening and we'll catch you next time.
0: Thank you.